You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. It's been almost four months now since the military's unexplained leak of firefighting foam concentrate at Red Hill. We're still waiting for the public release of video and a report on what happened. But today we're taking a closer look at these forever chemicals known as PFAS. It's short for the compounds that don't break down in the environment easily. We connected with John Brockwrightens, Vice President for Research and Development for a company called Claros Technologies, to learn more. So PFAS are referred to as the forever chemicals. These are per-polyfluoroalkyl substances. These are carbon-fluorine molecules that are really persistent in the environment. Once PFAS molecules are emitted into the environment, uh, once they're utilized in products, for example, they're very difficult to, to break down. So in products that contain PFAS or you know PFAS waste directly are put into landfills, there's a, there's a risk for those PFAS molecules to be leached from that landfill. Uh, because they don't break down, they stay in these landfills forever, and they can be you know, eventually emitted into surrounding water bodies from landfills. And some landfills are lined, right, with the idea that you know, they try and contain some of the bad stuff that's uh, buried there. Um, but I understand that, it, yeah, it's in the leachate. Yes, that is correct. And so even though landfills are lined, they still do manage the water that comes off of the landfill. And PFAS are exceptionally difficult to remove with conventional treatment technologies. So there are a lot of groups working right now to improve filtration technologies, but the problem right now is is outpacing the, the technology development. As far as PFAS and landfills, we're really just kind of scratching the surface to understand what the impact is. Uh, so, for example, the EPA recently put out uh, their next step in their PFAS action plan, and that is to look at landfills nationwide to do PFAS testing to determine uh, what the impacts are from those specific landfills. Because not every landfill will have you know, PFAS in it, but there will be some that may have a lot of PFAS. It depends on the history of the type of waste that those landfills were accepting and you know how recently they've upgraded their treatment systems. So this is really just kind of scratching the surface of understanding the magnitude of this problem right now. Well, the EPA has just you know changed some of its rules, right, and requirements about testing for this stuff and the levels that they consider okay or not okay. That is correct. And so the EPA recently put out a new method for PFOS testing that specifically looks at wastewater and water coming off of landfills as it is within that category. So with this new EPA method, they're looking at 40 different PFAS compounds that could be coming off of landfills. And then as the EPA advances their monitoring plans of these wastewaters, then they will start to make regulations surrounding the, whatever they find. So then this wastewater could be going into our bodies of water, whether they be lakes or oceans? or maybe contaminating aquifers potentially? Yeah, so this it depends on the on the the landfill itself. Primarily landfills will their their effluents will can go into groundwater which could impact aquifers uh, or their effluents will go to a publicly owned treatment works. So they will go into a sewer system, but then you essentially just put the problem further down the line cuz then it's on the public utility to then try to remove PFAS. So if they are unable to remove PFAS at the public utility, then yes, it will wind up in a, in a water body, a surface water body. For us at Claros Technologies, we're working on PFAS destruction technologies. So as I mentioned, PFAS are the forever chemicals. They do not break down. And so a lot of separation technologies, they're either missing PFAS completely or they're just sending PFAS further downstream. What Claros is doing is they're actually working to destroy PFAS compounds. We're eliminating the problem and closing the loop as we like to say, on PFAS. So looking at the destruction of these compounds is really the only way to prevent them from continually cycling in the environment. And that's a big problem right now for landfills that may have received a lot of PFAS-containing waste without even knowing it in the past. And now these landfills are kind of stuck in this, in this, with this issue of having to now do treatment for PFAS for a problem that they didn't even purposely or knowingly, in, in some cases, uh, create for themselves. Have you been successful in neutralizing this? So what we do in, in our facility is we utilize a UV light technique. So we use UV light 
and we expose uh, contaminated water to that UV light with some chemistry that we add, and that will effectively destroy PFAS in the water. That is our approach for PFAS destruction. And are you working with the military to help treat maybe some of these areas? So we work across the industry for, we work with uh, industrial users of PFAS, we do work with the military, we do work with municipalities. We are developing technology and we are trying to see where we're going to make the biggest impact with PFAS destruction. Trying to destroy it at the source or at a landfill is a key opportunity for us because those tend to be places where PFAS are more concentrated just by nature of uh, people either using PFAS industrially or people uh, disposing of PFAS in a landfill. So you've been successful with the UV treatment then? Yes, we have. We've been very successful. We've demonstrated over 99% destruction of PFAS compounds in a very short amount of time and of a wide variety of these water streams. We're very excited about our progress in this area, and we're moving to, to scale up this technology and apply it to these concentrated PFAS areas. Well, it sounds very encouraging if there's a quick solution and, and maybe not a very expensive one that maybe that would that would be helpful. Yeah, and that's really the value add that we're trying to bring here. We're trying to you know, close the loop on PFAS, close the door and prevent the the transmission of these compounds through the environment, but also, you know, the continued liability of some of the people that we work with. Having the comfort in knowing that the PFAS is totally destroyed is really valuable and really helpful not only to our customers, but also to the public. Is it being used globally? Yeah, I would say in the United States and in Europe, where we see the most stringent regulations, that is really driving technology development. So I would say the U.S. right now are, are actually leading the, leading the path or leading the pack in terms of uh, where new technologies are being developed to treat for PFAS. Those will be applied in the U.S. and in Europe. Where in Europe is this being used? So primarily uh, in the EU, so Germany, Belgium, there are two countries that have uh, regulated PFAS pretty stringently. And so they are the leaders in Europe as far as adapting PFAS destruction technologies. We've been around since 2018, and we've been working on PFAS since that time. Uh, we've developed a lot of methodologies for testing for PFAS as well as for PFAS destruction. Uh, we were very proud of our advances there and our capabilities in our laboratories. I was just in Japan last week. You know, I would say Japan is you know, maybe a few years behind the U.S. in terms of regulation, but it, we, we do believe that it is coming, and this is really knowledge of this issue is really growing globally. That was John uh, Brockbrightons of Claros Technologies talking to us about the company's success with using UV light to treat PFAS in landfills. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. For today's Backyard Quiz, we're returning to the early 19th century, back when we were the Sandwich Isles. Whaling ships were in the water and missionaries were beginning their efforts to convert the population to Christianity. In 1823, a young woman born into slavery in New Jersey stepped foot on the shores of Oahu, and her contribution to the islands as a teacher would be what she is now remembered for. She was the very first black woman on record to have lived in Hawaii, and most significantly was the first missionary to teach Hawaiian children, not the elite, but the commoners. All who have been educated here in Hawaii can look to her efforts as the first who believe that everyone, not just the privileged, should have an education. Upon her return to the continent, she helped to found a school and a church. Can you name, uh, tell us the name of this woman? We recently featured her, uh, her story on The Conversation. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets an HPR reusable tote bag. Thank you. 
Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing affordable housing for families, such as the Institute for Human Services. NareetHawaii.com. A million-dollar federal grant is going to help jumpstart a program to train workers needed for jobs to convert thousands of cesspools on the Big Island. It's a collaboration between the Pacific International Center for Technology uh, Technology Research, PICTOR for short, and the nonprofit group VI, which stands for Wastewater Alternatives and Innovations. Stuart Coleman says VI sought and got help from U.S. Senator Maisie Hirono to launch the Workforce for Water effort. This uh, Workforce for Water program that we conceived of uh, right during the beginning of the pandemic um, came into being because Hawaii went from having the lowest unemployment rate in the country to having the highest shortly after the pandemic went global. And so we knew that workforce development would be a crucial area in diversifying our workforce and economy. And so we came up with this concept and applied for an earmark from Senator Hirono's office, and she was great and saw the vision of how desperately it was needed, especially with you know, us having the highest number of cesspools in the country. So it's great to finally, um, we just launched the program at the beginning of the month. The urgency of the situation is, you know, First of all, there's the, the economic need for more diversity, which I mentioned, but then the environmental is that these the wastewater from cesspools and failing septic systems are really kind of the last straw in breaking the back of our coral reefs. And so with all the other stressors of you know ocean acidity and global warming, they've shown Greg Asner at, at the Marine Education Center in Mililii on the Big Island have shown that this can be the thing that is the tipping point for coral reefs. And so we really need to just protect our reefs because that's fishing, that's tourism, that's so many other things. But then for human health aspects, there was a study done on the Big Island that has the most cesspools and one half of the wells, private drinking water wells, tested positive for fecal indicator bacteria. That's kind of hard to get your mind around when you think about we're contaminating our water supply. Then in order to deal with this problem, how do we work through the solution? We are just launching it um, now, and we just hired on uh, two new staff members who are going to be helping to come up with the curriculum and uh, teaching these courses. And we'll begin in the fall, and they'll be at Hawaii Community College because the chancellor there, Rachel Solomsas, was, she and I were the first to talk about and come up with this concept, and then we expanded and include all kinds of partners at UHC Grant and um, Water you know, uh, Resources Research Center at UH. So yeah, they'll start classes in the fall, and what we're trying to do is really create pathways for a lot of our young people and people who might be unemployed and looking for training in a field, because this is the silver lining of this whole cesspool issue is that it's a huge economic and workforce opportunity. And I think that's what you know, Governor Josh Green saw that this wasn't just an obligation, that this was an opportunity as well. And Hawaii Island has the largest number of cesspools. Yeah, they have uh, 49,000 cesspools. And you can either do three, one of three things. I just finished up working on the cesspool conversion working group after four years of meetings. And, you know, we can either connect them to sewer, extend sewer in certain areas, but that's the most cost prohibitive and disruptive, you know, digging up our roadways uh, method. And then there's connecting to decentralized systems, local package systems, and we're a big believer in that because instead of trying to do one cesspool at a time, we can do you know 50, 100, or hundreds at a time. Uh, places like Hawaii Paradise Park on the Big Island, you know, where there are over 1,000 cesspools, we could hook those up. And it's much less expensive, especially if you use like a, what's called a prelos model, a pressurized liquid-only sewer. You can use PVC pipe to connect all these houses because it's liquid only from the septic tank that's in front of the house. And then the final one is just individual wastewater systems. And what we really need to be careful of is, 
you know, Hawaii was the, the last state by several decades to ban cesspools. And so every other state has done this long before us. And we can learn lessons from them. And what we don't want to do is allow septic systems that still leach phosphorus and nitrogen and this nutrient pollution because that's what's killing the reefs. You've got the first cohort then slated for the fall. How do we get our hands on these folks? I, I mean, are, are these, you know, are we going into the, the high schools? You know, how do, how do we reach out? So we're going to be doing a lot of things. We're going to be doing town hall meetings. We're going to start with Hawaii and the Big Island. We're working with Hawaii Community College and Maui College. And then hopefully we'll get some more funding to do uh, Kauai and Oahu soon after. And yeah, we're going to use social media. We're going to use town hall meetings in certain communities. We're going to be targeting disadvantaged youth, Native Hawaiians, and underserved populations because that's part of the current administration's focus, you know, is really targeting, you know, underserved communities because 25% of homes in the United States are on these individual wastewater systems. And yet the vast majority of public funding from the EPA and such has always gone to the big municipal system. So it's a big gap, and we're trying to fill that gap. The other big gap is workers. And so that's where we're stepping in to train these workers. And after they take our kind of wastewater 101 course, they can either have two paths. One is to get them into jobs or internships in local companies, or we partnered with Rachel Solemsas at Hawaii Community College. They also got an NSF grant, a National Science Foundation, to do further training to really get them credentialed degrees in five different areas in, in the workforce. So that's really exciting. So the most immediate challenge, though, is developing that curriculum for the first class. Yes, exactly. And so that's what we will be working on for the next five months. And then you've partnered with Pictor to get yeah. this grant. Yeah. And, and Pictor's been around for a while. You folks are fairly new. Yeah, and it was it was really the kind of perfect match because, like you said, Pictor has been around. That stands for Pacific International uh, Center for High Technology Research. It's quite a mouthful. And Dennis Taranishi and his, his great team have really helped bring a lot of federal funding to Hawaii. And we were a new startup nonprofit that was just trying to help homeowners and communities and workers. So it was really a good fit. We picked them the idea. They were all about it and have been really supportive. And so this is a million dollar grant yeah. over two years. How are you looking at targeting the Big Island? I mean, are, are you going to go for communities along the coast first? or Because you know, I know there's studies right now with our seaweed, with our lemu, yeah. right, to, to figure out you know where exactly are the problem areas. Yeah. Or do you go inland? Our goal is to have 100 people graduate through this program in the first two years. And hopefully we'll have more than that. You know, I always like to say this is a, you know, green job. Some might think of it as a brown job or a crappy job, but these are long-term workers. You know, it pays well. And so I think there's a real opportunity for people to not only work outdoors and do this very, very needed and long overdue work, but it also, you know, helps protect our, our water supply, our aqua and ocean waters where we swim and fish. And so you can feel good about the, the work that you're doing. Yeah, so I guess maybe that's the pitch is, you know, you're you're really helping to malama the aina and the bai, yeah, right? Yeah. Our water and our earth. And, and, and that's the way you want to protect it. Yep. Sign up over here. <laughs> exactly. And so we're hoping to really kind of motivate people who, you know, you have to have a sense of humor about this stuff. I always say, you know, the two most important reasons that we're doing this kind of work are number one and number two. That takes a second. But yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but once people really look into it, they're like, wow, this is essential, you know, because in the only other place in the country that has more cesspools than Hawaii is Suffolk County, which is Long Island, New York. And we went and visited them, and their whole shellfish industry has collapsed completely um, because of the nutrient pollution, mostly the nitrogen, going out into the bays, and it's just not safe to eat anything out of there, and production just died down. So I think this is something that can unite fishermen you know, politicians and local people who want to just protect their local resources. 
it's something of value. When we're talking about pay, though, yeah. what kind of salaries are we talking about? That's you know, it's, it's hard to say right now because the positions range from anywhere from designers, which were traditionally done by engineers or architects, landscape architects. So those are going to pay much higher. And then all the way to installations, you know, people working from local contracting firms. But, you know, we've kind of looked at the industry and it starts at a living wage. So that's good. So it's going to be higher than a lot of the service industry jobs and tourism related jobs. But the possibilities are there. Uh, it's an opportunity for young folks to get out there and get in the workforce and yeah. do something good for the environment. Yeah, exactly. And, and feel good about the, the work they're doing and help the state overcome a major, major hurdle. And so, you know, the other urgency that we're looking at is really trying to target federal funding, especially while this bipartisan infrastructure law funding is available. So that's another thing we're trying to do is try to get more money into the state to help local homeowners and and really, you know, stimulate the economy and the job force. If there are people out there who are interested, what do they need to know? We'll be doing uh, a lot of outreach in the next coming months, but if you want to check out our website at VI, our name is VI Wastewater Alternatives and Innovations, and it's vicleanwater.org. So W-A-I cleanwater.org, and there's more information there, and um, folks can contact us through that, through the website. That was Stuart Coleman of VI talking with us about a program to train workers to help with the push to convert thousands of cesspools to more environmentally friendly systems. Support for HPR comes from Costco Air Conditioning and Refrigeration, serving Hawaii since 1961, featuring Daikin Air Conditioning Systems. Listing of contractors who install Daikin products at CostcoHawaii.com. On the next Fresh Air, actor Kiwi Kwan. As a kid, he starred in the 80s films Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and Goonies, then later quit acting. The first acting job he got in decades in the film Everything Everywhere All at Once has earned him an Oscar nomination. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Support for HPR comes from SEEKS, the School for Examining Essential Questions of Sustainability, a public charter middle school in Honolulu, educating with a focus on stewardship and community. Now enrolling, seeqs.org. It's been a very wet and windy February, and that means our ocean waters are probably not as clear as they could be with sediment and other pollutants entering our coastlines. Hui Okavai Ola is a community-based water monitoring program. It translates to the Association for Living Waters. For the past seven years, its clean ocean team has analyzed over 3,200 water quality samples from 48 sites across the Valley Isle. The Conversations Lillian Song sat down with senior team leader Liz Yonell to talk about its latest citizen science effort. What's interesting about the way we collect our samples is that we do it every three weeks. And the intent of that, you know, because you collect a sample in the ocean and it's just a snapshot of our water quality at that moment at a site. But water chemistry can vary so drastically with things like tides and currents and rainfall or other freshwater input. Doing it every three weeks allows us to find variation in things like the moon cycle and the tide cycle and if there's a rain event or not. But what's great is we've been sampling since 2016 and we've collected so many samples that we now feel like we have essentially like a baseline of what is normal at these sites that we've been monitoring for so long. So when we see a spike, when we see something change, it can catch our eye and we can start to figure out what caused this. Where did this come from? Is this coastal erosion? Is this rainwater runoff? Is this injection well like what's going on at this site and sometimes it's a combination of all three of those things or sometimes we can pinpoint a restroom public restroom facility that needs an upgrade or some construction site up the mountain that 
you know, maybe had some issues going on. It's like a cause and effect. Yes. So it's really exciting to be at the point now where our organization is starting to have a deeper understanding of what ocean water quality is on Maui. You already have that really rich database. Going back to 2016, Mm -hmm. that is your baseline. When you guys notice a spike, a change in that information. So you guys are like investigators. You're then (laughs) out to find out where is this problem originating from? And is that what happened at one of the the spots? You guys actually were able to pinpoint that it was a cesspool situation? Yeah, well, um, it wasn't a cesspool issue as much as it was Kapalua Bay. This is West Maui. Mm -hmm. And there were changes that were made early 2019. They made some improvements to the sewer lines and the lift stations just above Malka from Kapalua Bay. And by the time we got to like 2020, we were seeing big drops in nitrate levels in our coastal water samples. And it really just showed that when changes happen, it can really make an impact on our oceans. You know, there are really big issues going on with our oceans with climate change and sea level rise and coastal erosion and ocean acidification. But we can do things on like the local, more pinpointed scale of just trying to improve our ocean water quality from the things we do on land to help our coral reefs survive and thrive and support. You know, the coral reefs are so important to the island of Maui and all of the islands of Hawaii. You know, they're culturally, economically, and ecologically vital to our livelihood, really. So these things that can happen, like improving the the whole sewage issue just above Kapalua made a big difference in how the bay is doing now. That's a wonderful example, comparing the reality of what's going on on land and then what is happening in the water. So when you say there are big drops in nitrate levels, does that mean that's healthier for the reefs? That means less algae blooms going on? Oh, yes. I'm glad you asked. Exactly. So nitrates, they really can lead to algae blooms. They can either outcompete corals for the space on like the reef structure. Sometimes turf algae will just like grow over the coral reefs and just take over an area or it can kind of prevent sunlight from being able to reach the coral reef and allow the, the zooxanthellae that live inside the coral to give it enough food for the coral to survive. You can kind of think of nitrate as a lot of times you find nitrate in fertilizers, you know, so it essentially just helps the algae grow at a rate that normally it wouldn't take off. And with your group deploying every three weeks, really going back to the same areas, it's very systematic. And you do work with scientists, highly trained community volunteers who are monitoring the water quality. And then you share the information with partner groups like the Hawaii Department of Health, especially Mm -hmm. with the past few months. We've had some really, really big rainfall. And if that is the case, you're probably talking about runoff, erosion. And that would be sediment, once again, more nitrogen flowing into the ocean. Mm -hmm. I was on your website and I saw that you have something called the Brown Water Watch. What is that about? Oh, great question. So that's something we've just recently started to lift off the ground. We've had some really big rain systems over the past few years, and we've been watching the numbers. The data is showing that we're being impacted more now by these storms. We're getting more turbidity, which turbidity is like the water clarity in our ocean We're getting higher numbers, especially in Hihei area, has been really impacted by these crazy storms we've had. And so it's one thing for us to have these numbers, these data points. For example, Waipuilani Park, after this most recent storm in December, we had numbers of turbidity up to 47 NTU. And NTU stands for Nephilometric Turbidity Units, and that's how we measure our water clarity. And that's really quite high because we normally see the geomean is about 13 in that area, which is 65 times higher than the state standard that the Hawaii Department of Health Clean Water Branch set for turbidity. So it's normally kind of high, but it was really high after these storms. And we can monitor these numbers and put out these data points. But sometimes what's really impactful is just seeing the photos of an area after a brown water event, after a big storm, seeing that plume of sediment that goes out into the ocean, 
how far it reaches, and then monitoring with photos how long it takes until that sediment clears out. And so we've just started this brown water watch program where people can send us photos that they've taken. And we love any type of photo, whether it's a drone shot or an up-close shot of a stream flowing into the ocean. It's just great for us to have some documentation and be able to, you know, a picture's worth a thousand words, right? Mm-hmm. Be able to share that on social media, share it with the Department of Health so they can keep track of it as well. So our email address is brownwaterwatch at gmail.com. And we're also on Instagram and Facebook, also Brown Water Watch. We just invite, if you aren't able to volunteer with us regularly or donate to the organization, but you care and you see these things happening, we have to, you know, document it. We have to keep track. And that's one new thing that we're trying to do, kind of the next next step as we're growing. Hmm. Well, Liz, you do have different projects going on, and there is something involving a pesticide project with Tova Calendar. What is that project about? Mm-hmm. So the pesticide project is it's exciting, and, and what we're trying to do is track current use pesticides as they reach our coral reefs. So we're partnering up with NOAA and DAR to help get this project underway and understand what pesticides are actually getting to our ocean water, our coral reefs, our fisheries. And so it's, it's a really cool thing. There are these, if you remember those, they were so popular years ago, the Livestrong silicone armbands, they were like bright yellow. It's essentially the same thing. They're these like silicone bands and they've been treated in the NOAA lab and they've been treated in a way that will allow them to bind to any pesticides that reach the water. We went out this week and we deployed about 18, maybe it was 20 bands along the Leeward Coast. And we also have a one site on the North Shore we're going to do. We had some of our great volunteers are also just water lovers and they're free divers. So they help to dive down and dip tie these silicone bands to parts of the reef that are either dead or just a piece of rock structure where we won't be hurting the coral, but we're right next to the coral reef. And we're leaving these there for about 28 days, just depending on if we have another rain event in 28 days, we might have to take them out sooner or take them out a little later. But the point is they'll be in the water and they will be collecting any pesticides that come down and then we'll remove them and we'll send them back to the lab in North Carolina to NOAA and they will then analyze them and figure out what has accumulated there. So... We have had one of our bands actually already um, be called to us that it detached and loaded up. And we're we're a little puzzled by that because we felt like we so securely zip-tied them to the the reef area. But maybe it was a snorkeler that saw, you know, these bright yellow things on the reef and thought they should remove this trash, which is normally a great thing to do. But if you do see these out in the water and you're snorkeling, they do have a little tab that explains which site it is, and that it's a Zara and Noah project. So if you see them out there, bright yellow bands, just let them be for the next few weeks, and then we'll be happy to share our results once we get them back. Hmm. The little bands are doing the hard work. The data that you collect, it's out there for people to access, and it's you're sharing this knowledge with everyone. Yep, all this data that we collect. It's really important to us that anyone can go onto our website at Huyoka Viola. and they can download our big spreadsheet and see the numbers. Or you can also download our report. We just recently, at the end of last year, published our findings from the last six years. So you can see kind of an analysis of what we've understood section by section of our Leeward Coast. Another piece that's really important with our data being publicly available is also that we have these great partners like the Nature Conservancy and the Ridge to Reef Initiative and the Maui Marine Resource Council that take our data and then they do things up country, up the mountains to make an effort to actually have projects that restore the land or do things that will help our water quality. That was Hui O Kavaiola's uh, Liz Yunel talking with HPR's Dillian Song about a new Brown Water Watch program. We'll have a link to the website on hawaiipublicradio.org slash the conversation later today.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Ferraro Choi, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. Supporting Hawaii Public Radio for more than 25 years, FerraroChoi.com. Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, host of The Body Show. Each week we do our best to provide you with up-to-date medical information from our local experts that might help you or someone you love know more about the world of medicine. Join us today for our latest episode at 6.30 right here on The Body Show. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Honolulu Waldorf School, serving Hawaii's families with parent-child programs from infancy through grade 8. Now accepting applications at honoluluwaldorf.org. Civil Beat brings us a reality check on over-tourism. Do we need a caring capacity study to tell us whether 10 million tourists is too much? Reporter Stuart Yurton joins us today. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Catherine. So you were looking at a bill that's making its way through uh, the legislature. Yes, yeah, so there is a bill. Uh, Representative uh, Natalia Hussey-Burdick has uh, proposed a bill saying, hey, we need to figure out how many tourists is too many uh, to have here in Hawaii every year. It's making its way through the legislature, and it really prompt. We're really interested for a couple of reasons. One, uh, the fact that people are once again raising the question of how many tourists is too many is pretty interesting. Three years after the pandemic shut down everything, it looks like the industry is back in a big way and people are asking the question. And as we looked at it more, we heard other people saying, look, we know. We don't need to ask how many is too many. We generally know there are too many. And what we need are carrying capacity programs, not studies. So that's the debate. Uh, regardless, everybody seems to agree carrying capacity is important. It's just how to deal with it. Yeah. And, and you kind of wonder, gosh, I mean, you know, carrying capacity uh, issues have been around for a while. So, I mean, why didn't we do it sooner? <laughs> Well, that's one of the questions. Why, why didn't we do it sooner? But uh, they're doing it now, at least proposing to. One thing that was done sooner that kind of flew under the radar a little bit was a carrying capacity bill for the North Shore that was passed uh, last year, signed into law. It was Act 31 of the 2022 session. And it actually sets up a carrying capacity program for uh, areas of the North Shore there with Sharks Cove, namely. Well, now, I know that uh, we just featured a, a, a researcher that was involved in a carrying capacity study for Hanama Bay. So the city has been uh, working, I think, with the Sea Grant on that. Yes, exactly. So Sea Grant's also been working on things. They also started to do a carrying capacity study just before the pandemic um, of the Kailua and Waimanalo communities looking looking at those. Again, those were a little different. Uh, those were more social carrying capacity studies saying how many people and how many tourists per year can these communities uh, withstand or tolerate without really everything souring. Uh, so Yes, there are types. One is the type you're describing, I think primarily an ecological or environmental study, uh, Hanama Bay. You've got social caring capacity studies uh, that were done in for Waimanalo and Kailua. Uh, but again, you've got this other one now saying, hey, statewide, why don't we take a look at this and figure it out? And, you know, over there on the North Shore, you know, uh, they have got the uh, marine... Uh, uh, preserve area, you know, uh, which is where all the tourists go. And unlike Hanama Bay, where you can control the, you know, uh, the ingress and egress, they can't really do that along the North Shore. So it's it's pretty tricky. And I know we talked to uh, one of the organizers out there, and and you know they were experimenting with somehow, uh, you know, putting in natural or uh, native 
uh, how would you say, flora and fauna to guide the tourists to the entrance, you know, of, uh, of the, the Sharks Cove area. So it's interesting to yeah, see what they're tying. That's exactly right. So one of the contrasts between that was mentioned in, in the Act 31 passed last year was there is a big difference between that area on the North Shore, uh, Pupukea area, and Hanama Bay. There's just no management, really, or very little management compared to what you have at Hanama Bay. And that's why they're saying, hey, this kind of caring capacity program is what's important in places, not another study to see how many people is too many. And again, the thought is, for instance, on the North Shore, maybe we need times when we just say, kapu, this area is shut down for a while. No tourists are going to be allowed. We'll let the resource come back up. And again, it, it's very interesting when you look at it. The focus there on uh, the North Shore is protecting the environment. There's the, the issue is the re- coastal resource protecting nature. It's not about residents. It's not about tourists. It's not about the tourism industry. It's about the land and the ocean. Yeah, and I think Denise Antolini, uh, who was with the uh, uh, Pupukea Marine Life Conservation uh, uh, District group, I mean, yeah, they just say, we can't afford to wait. We've got to do this now. Right, and that's the question. So everybody agrees, carrying capacity, important question, how to do it. All right. Okay, well, thanks so much, Stuart. Thank you, Catherine. That was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's Reality Check. Read his story at civilbeat.org. now for your backyard quiz answer. We asked you the name of the first missionary woman to teach the Hawaiian children, not the elite or royalty. She was born a slave in Princeton, New Jersey in 1798. By early adulthood, this woman had her heart set on becoming a teacher to black children. And this was at a time before the Civil War when many did not want blacks to have any schooling at all. Today, we can think of her as both an activist and a teacher. She arrived on Oahu in 1823 and stayed two years, living both on Oahu and Maui. When she returned to the continent, she opened the first and only school for black children and helped to establish Princeton's first Presbyterian Church of Color. She lived the remainder of her life in New Jersey, where she was a beloved and respected member of her community. She was widely known as the woman who had gone to the Sandwich Isles. The woman's name and the answer to today's backyard quiz, Betsy Stockton. And our winner today, Dolores from Eva Beach. You got it right. If you have an idea for a quiz to share or write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. Chances are, if you've got a memory of an event at Aloha Stadium, an athletic game or a concert, you know, for some, that may have been the motivation for a final visit to the facility this weekend. It was for HPR reporter Casey Harlow, who joins us today. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I pretty sure we all have some sort of memory, as you said, of Aloha Stadium. For me, at least, uh, the last time I was there was with our operations manager, uh, Ray Cruz. Uh, We went to a UH football game uh, under the Norm Chow era. They played Mm -hmm. uh, San Jose State, and I kept asking him, uh, when are we going to pass the ball ever? Because we don't have the personnel to run it down uh, anybody's throat. But uh, I went to Aloha Stadium uh, on Saturday, which was the Aloha to Aloha Stadium. It's the last event uh, that fans could uh, get to see the behind the scenes, the locker rooms, get to see memorabilia from uh, the past, you know, got to see some Hawaii Islanders jerseys that I haven't ever seen before. There was also, uh, you know, a little uh, back 
uh, area where musicians could just, you know, chill out before they went on to stage. And also as well, a lot of UH uh, gear as well. People could buy uh, pieces of the stadium as well. They were selling uh, seats. They were selling turf. Uh, there was also old school photos uh, that were up for online auction as well. So it was a trip down memory lane. Uh, for sure it was. Um, and I just wanted to ask people, you know, this is the last time that you may be in the stadium before it gets demolished later this year, uh, making way for the new Aloha Stadium Entertainment District. And uh, I spoke with Clinton Ogata, who is a lifelong UH football fan. And this is um, one of the main things that he uh, told me. So I first came with my grandparents, sit up in the blue in the south end zone. I remember watching Jim Harbaugh with Michigan coming down. And then progressed all the way through high school, college, with, with June coming here, and came here with a family of my own, with my wife and, and my son now, and it's just awesome. I remember running onto the field after Boise State when we beat them in 07. That was fantastic. And favorite player ever, I don't know, it has to go in between Timmy and El Noga. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, I mean, it's obviously has a, this profound impact, you know, on a lot of people, and uh, for many, you know, even going back to high school, you know, Aloha Stadium has been used uh, for graduations, has been used uh, for even uh, championship football games or even playoff games. And uh, spoke with uh, Catherine Kishaba, who is one of the few to perform at Aloha Stadium for the IAEA uh, High School Marching Band and as well for UH, you know, that going from high school and college, you know, spending eight years performing at Aloha Stadium. Uh, yeah, this is uh, her her thoughts on and her feelings on uh, Aloha Stadium. There's a lot of memories. Um, I was lucky enough to be here both as a pep band player in high school and at the University of Hawaii. I got to also march on this field as a high schooler and as a member of the University of Hawaii band. And for a band kid, that's like the pinnacle, the same way the football guys are like, oh, we just want to play at the stadium. Well, the coolest thing you can do as a high school band player is to march on this field for four years and then actually go to the University of Hawaii and march on this field uh, with the rainbow band. And also she was uh, one of the uh, part of the second class for IAEA High School to graduate at Aloha mm. Stadium as well. For a really long time, you know, high schools had graduation on campus, but some have moved to the stadium as well. Uh, even spoke with some security guards. You know, security guards are always great, and, uh, you know, for me at least, it's always <laughs> funny to interact with them. Uh, spoke with a few. Um, a lot of people wanted to talk story, but not wanting to uh, get recorded. And uh, Rob, who is one of the few, uh, shared this memory of when he was in high school. Skipping football practice to come to the BYU UH game. Honest to God, came late because like we were at, still at school. I think it was an early game, like a four o'clock game. We came late after we skipped practice to walk into uh, Chad Owens kickoff return. And it was like probably the most surreal, like crowd going off. We literally walked in and then the whole freaking stadium just started shaking and we saw Chad Owens score a kickoff touchdown. But they killed BYU like 63-0 or something like that. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah, and um, one of the things that uh, some of the security guards noticed was he never wanted to play the early game, the afternoon games, because it would the heat of uh, the sun beating down on that turf like would radiate up and it was just miserable. Uh, but, you know, also asked some people about how they feel about it coming, uh, Aloha Stadium coming to an end and, you know, maybe the future of, you know, the new Aloha Stadium Entertainment District. Um, and this, Rob, again, had some pretty uh, interesting thoughts about it. Um, somewhat, I guess. I mean, just comparing it to other stadiums I've been to, colleges I've been to, this place needs to be teared down and be better for the people because we don't get that much. That's that's my honest feeling about it. You know what I mean? Like, it was great when it first came out, but you know we're in the 2000s now, and I mean I think we deserve a, a, a top-notch facility, you know, for our people of Hawaii. And obviously, a lot of people have uh, some uh, interesting feelings about maybe UH going back to, uh, say, the new Aloha Stadium to play. Uh, but I think the main thing that a lot of people uh, expressed to me is uh, that it, there is a place in the community for a new stadium, especially for the high school kids, you know, and maybe even to attract 
talent uh, to UH as well, if that's a thing. Yeah, and a venue for concerts. That I have memories of the Rolling Stones. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> just fun. one of the many uh, music acts that have come through here and played at the stadium. Yeah, we're just going to have to wait till they rebuild a new one and we can have a, a big concert again. But yeah. thanks so much, <laughs> Thank Casey. You. We've been talking to HBR's Casey Harlow about the final event at Aloha Stadium that was held this past Saturday. Uh, check out his stories on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Well, that is it for us today. Tomorrow, we plan to hear from funny man Andy Bumatai, who returns to the stage after a hiatus. Do you have an Aloha Stadium story to share with us? Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. You can find the Conversation Podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.